Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ellie Not So Confidential, this time episode 79. I'm here with my bestie and co-host, Dr. Shiloh. Hello, Dr. Shiloh. Hi, Dr. Scott. Thanks for being here with me to do another episode. From my tiny little closet. Here I am. So tiny and adorable. I love it. (laughs) How do you fit in that tiny little closet? I got to grease up to get in here. This sounds just (laughs) gross as hell. Ew. Ew. Nobody wants to grease up to get back in the closet. Ew, David. I know. Hey, so off the top, we had a watch party last night that yes. went great. <laughs> I had never seen Body and Clyde. Oh, so you had not seen so it? Fun. No, it was fun to watch a new movie with you guys. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it was great. We, I, I had a blast the same way we did in the last couple, being able to make it like pop-up video was back in the what, 90s or 2000s and yes. drop in trivia and stuff. But everybody seemed to enjoy it. They had, And we had such different perspectives. And one of the things that came up was that this was a very different time in filmmaking. And even though it's it's on the one of the top 100, it's one of the top 100 movies to see, you know, mm-hmm. as, as far as like AFI lists and stuff. But it is not done in a modern theatrical style at all. It is actually edited based on the heavy influence of French New Wave cinema at the time. Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. You get those like hard stares to the camera and... <laughs> Quick cuts and... Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was good though. It was fun. It was really cool to see a lot of those actors just so young. I know. But, and and yeah, just... And the screen loves them. Boy, yeah. the screen loves Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. Wow. Thank you so much for... Our listeners, you know, just spending a Friday night with us was great. So we appreciate you. Yes. Our next two scheduled get vocals. So the Saturday after we drop this one and then the following one are not going to happen. So we, for for the one following this episode, we are going to be teaming up with Hollyweird Paranormal to do a little collaboration that will be content coming out. So please forgive us. We won't be doing a get vocal. And then the following week in which we would have the next one would be October 9th. That is the same date as our Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios. So have no fear. We still will be putting out content. Maybe we'll be live streaming and giving you something to watch. But we'll be back with get vocals at the end of October. So... This week's episode number 79 is going to be markedly different from last week's, although last week's talked about some pretty bad crimes. Sure. What we're talking about this week takes it really deeper into some more detail. We will, we're giving you trigger warnings right now that we're going to be talking about issues of child abuse, child endangerment, and literally child murder by parents under the term filicide. So really want to give you a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about some brutal things here. We will do our best. We are not going to glorify the killers at all by any means. If nothing else, we would want to call attention to the fact that while thankfully the numbers on this type of phenomenon are relatively rare, we should highlight that we don't have full data because so much of this stuff is not reported and falls through the cracks and is also, especially in large urban areas, is very difficult to follow by even large child and family service organizations. 
I have a great deal of respect for Department of Child and Family Services. I know that there are horror stories for them. I will say this. I have worked with clinicians at DCFS that are amazing, amazing people. And if you only knew what their caseloads looked like, you would understand how difficult this is. The Mm caseloads that they put on these people are ungodly. I mean, they are just huge. And they're all over a very large metropolitan area. Yeah. That feels like neglect in and of itself, right? That we don't have more funding and people handling those cases. It's really allocation of resources and it's badly done. And that's where I'll leave it. Yeah. I agree with you. Yes. So we are going to keep the details to a minimum on this episode because it is going to be particularly heavy. Not only are we talking about filicide, but we are going to drill down specifically in looking at it in terms of the LGBTQIA plus community as far as yes. victim side. So we, gosh, maybe two years ago, did an episode looking at victims in the same community in a wide variety of offenses. Mostly, I think we just covered adult victims, but just probably one of the heaviest episodes we're ever going to do. I'll just say that and make sure you listen with care if this is something that is triggering, which should be for everyone and is particular to me as well. There are just some documentaries and some stories that I won't watch and I won't expose myself to. But what I want to do, because this, we have to back up a little bit. We're going to talk about what data exists, what data does not exist. Yes. So I think starting with just some really quick basic facts about child homicide in general, and then we're going to look at filicide. I'm going to sort of take the lead on that, and then we will drill down to the specific type of victims. So globally for child homicide of any type, perpetrated by anyone. If we look at about a 10-year span, there's an estimated total of over 200,000 children under the age of 14 that die by homicide. The vast majority of child killings are perpetrated by family members. I think most of us know that. You know, the, the offenders are usually closest to the victims. And specifically, when we talk about filicide, we're going to be talking about crimes carried out by parents, step-parents, and in some cases, guardians. So the definition here of filicide, it's really a subcategory of domestic homicide or intrafamilial homicide in which there is present the deliberate act of a parent killing their own child. If we're honing in just on filicide, Majority of the victims are under 17 years old, which you might say, well, of course, you're talking about parents killing their children. The parents can kill their adult children as well. Yes. We're focusing on all ages. However, the majority of victims who are children that die by the hands of their parents are still minors or not of age yet. Globally, filicide occurs most frequently in the first year of the child's life. I know, so vulnerable, particularly just a very stressful time for parents, which, you know, kind of starting to shape some psychology here. But men really tend to be responsible for about 52% of filicides and women 48%. However, rates are starting to decrease for the male perpetrators and increasing for women. And that was, that's in recent decades. And there's a lot of data on that. 
when we're looking at this type of murder. Children account for 21% of all domestic homicide victims. It's the second most frequent group after intimate partners. So obviously, you and I have talked about intimate partner violence and violence against women. And to think that the children are being harmed rather than other members of the family, other adults, is really heartbreaking that they're at, it's at these rates. So let's look a little bit. I was very interested in, okay, well, especially when we're talking like, okay, guardians, parents, step-parents, there's research out there that looks at this and what the differences are. When you compare biological parents to step-parents, we find that the filicides perpetrated by genetic parents and step-parents really do differ in a lot of motivational ways. So biological parents are more likely to choose methods of killing which produce quick and painless deaths. Oh my God. Well, unfortunately, step-parents frequently kill the children by beating. More impulsive maybe, you know, that we're here psychologically. What are the motivations? Right, right. And research also demonstrates that the victims of maternal filicides are significantly younger than the victims of paternal filicides. So caregiving ages, mothers maybe being more responsible for that. I think that flushes out as something that makes sense to me. Additionally, when it's a filicide suicide situation, when the parent takes the life of the child and then their own, it's really seen as associated with parentopsychopathology. So the research is showing a lot of severe mental illness in those cases. And that would be a murder-suicide? Involving the child. Yes, yes. So genetic fathers actually are the greatest risk of death by suicide after the commission of killing the child or children or maybe the entire family like we've seen in familicide-type situations. In 2016... A psychiatry professor, Philip Resnick, he identified five major motivations for filicide. And this is United States specific. I always am interested in typologies or categories, right? As far as we're, you know, trying to understand what's going on and the motivations, we can start to cluster these folks into different categories. So here's five, but I feel like the topic that you and I are drilling down on today is really going to be its own category. But I want to spend some time on these to really get an idea of what we're working with here. And there's definitely more research on some of these as compared to some of the other typologies, but bear with me on these. So the number... Well, the first typology, not the number one. There's there's no rates as far as numbers and which is at the top of the list here. But the first typology is acutely psychotic filicide. And this can be applied to psychotic parents who kill with no comprehensible motive. It sort of seems to come out of nowhere. There isn't anything that they have pointed to previously talking about this being a pre-planned event. And this is one I want to spend a little bit of time on because there's a lot of research here. So in the cases that they have been able to study where severely mentally ill, specifically mothers, are killing their children think probably Andrea Yates comes to mind. Yeah. Many times psychotic symptoms were present before the manifestation of the violent behavior. And that would come in the form of persecutory delusions, auditory hallucinations, and pathological impulsivity. I love that you're drilling down on those three things and using 
you know, Yates as an example, because there's also things that are aggravating all of those issues, which had to do with her husband being alone, taking care of all the kids by herself, being non-compliant with medication, falling in and out of treatment. Right. I mean, it was a brutal, brutal situation that led to that horrible crime. Absolutely. A review of filicidal women referred for criminal responsibility and competency to stand trial type of evaluations that was done between 1974 and 1996. I mean, we're talking a huge span of time where they were able to go back and document these cases because they had gone through the criminal justice system. This was at Michigan Center for Forensic Psychiatry. Well, this study showed most women at 52% had psychotic symptoms at the time of filicide. But, I mean, that's barely most. That's not a majority at all. It sort of hovers around half. (laughs) And then that means that there's nearly half of women who didn't suffer from psychosis. So So, you would say that the motivations were going to be pretty significantly different then? Absolutely. Yeah. So when compared to the women without psychosis, the psychotic women were more likely to have a history of substance abuse, of past and ongoing psychiatric treatment. They were older, they were unemployed, they were more educated, and they were divorced or separated. So I think this was fascinating to really like look at these things. I mean, these are are kind of blowing my mind, but I know we all have stereotypes in everything we think about with the type of perpetrator that does a specific type of crime. Well, isn't it about the lightning rod? I mean, regardless of whatever the motivation or the pathway is to this particular expression of violence, the lightning rod is the child. There's got to be some place to affect or displace that anger, that rage, that psychosis, and the child becomes the easiest target. And certainly one that is not going to have the means to fight back. Yeah the younger, smaller ones. So in the same study, the psychotic mothers more often confessed. They also attempted suicide at the time of the filicide. They used weapons in the perpetration of the crime. They killed multiple children. And this is all in comparison to the other sample, right? The ones that weren't psychotic. And they expressed homicidal thoughts and or concerns about their children to psychiatrists and family before the filicide happened. Very sad. So again, whatever preconceived notion you have in your head about what mentally ill mothers are, who they are, I think this information is just really interesting to look at the wide spectrum of characteristics and experiences that these mothers are having from all different walks of life. Yeah, you're clearly illustrating that this is not just easily stereotyped and labeled as to, oh, it's a psychotic mother or or, or some an form un- of psychosis. educated or a young right. uneducated mother. Yes. No, this isn't what they're seeing. So the second typology is the child maltreatment filicide. This usually involves a battered child where the child is injured through physical abuse over a long duration. And this is really the only one of the five categories where the child's death may be unintended. But I think reasonably expected, especially with the type of abuse and literally torture that we see with a lot of these cases. How could it not end in death? Right, but that is a a good 
point to put in for the examples that we come up with later. And we'll also provide in when we post the episode, we'll give links to other examples of this as well. In these examples of paternal and maternal filicide, there's a point at which what were you expecting? When you Mm -hmm. picked your child up and threw them against a wall, what were you expecting was going to happen? Or or did they? They did not expect. What does that say about the mental state of the perpetrator? What does that say about their understanding about life? Mm -hmm. Impulsivity, ability Mm -hmm. to control their rage, so many things that it brings up. Yep, yep. The third typology is altruistic filicide. And this occurs, this act is committed out of, air quotes, love, usually to help the child avoid perceived suffering. And the key there is perceived suffering, perceived by the parent, that essentially death would be better than whatever the perceived suffering is. So whether it's the child is disabled, whether it's financial suffering, like we see in a lot of male-perpetrated familicide, at least in contemporary times, This one is a really tough one. Looking at that, I can already think of examples. If we go back to Andrea Yates, then her belief was that her children were going to be possessed by demons. Right. So she was perpetrating this in an act of, air quotes, love to protect their eternal souls. Sure. But that belief is clearly coming from a place of psychosis. Right, right. And and there are situations that fall into this typology that exists that don't have anything to do with psychosis. So good example of one that does. And then there's just other situations in which the parent truly believes that the child is going to be better off if they're dead rather than suffering from whatever which way. The fourth typology is unwanted child filicide. The child is no longer wanted and the act is undertaken to achieve that. Usually, we're talking about the killing of newborns. That's what comes to mind with this. But, I mean, really, if we're going by this definition, someone like Susan Smith would fall into this category, right? The children were no longer wanted because it didn't fit the new life that she wanted. Yeah. So this is this is really... I mean, all of these are awful, but gosh, I mean, there's just such a variety once you start looking at this. And the final one is spousal revenge filicide. We kind of alluded to this when we talked about murder-suicide type situations and the motivation and action of the offender is a deliberate attempt to make their spouse or the other parent suffer. So this definitely would include familicide and murder-suicide type situations. Generally, these are male offenders and... I was also interested in looking at research with the impact of divorce and how did that phenomenon play into this. I was able to find a study from Australia that covered a 10-year period and they found that while separation was a factor identified in a significant number of cases, more cases showed evidence of mental illness, mainly depression, than the separation or the divorce. So again, it was coming back to some sort of mental illness. So that was depression in male offenders? They No, they looked at all offenders. Oh, okay, okay, across the board, okay. Yeah, across the board. Generally for this category, it's male offenders. So I'm guessing a huge piece of their sample was male offenders. There's just so many worldwide cultural issues that 
we can't even touch on here today. I think that's important to keep in mind. For instance, I found actually I found a really great study out of Japan that was looking at specifically maternal filicide. And they had a huge sample of women who had murdered their children. And they even broke it down by the age of the child. So infants and toddlers and young adults and adolescents. And I thought it was so interesting that the mothers who killed infants, there wasn't any significant mental illness going on there. They were women who had higher rates of being unmarried, financial difficulties, and the cultural pressure of not being able to have an illegitimate child and the shame. Uh, Got it. So from country to country and culture to culture, I believe there's just going to be so many differences when we look at filicide and you probably have to hone in on really what you're studying and where you're studying it from to be able to make a lot of sense of it, especially if you're doing research for policy building or lawmaking, or how do you better allocate resources in social work? You really have to look at specifically where that's happening because of all these different influences. Yeah. So that's filicide in a nutshell. That's that's the definition. I was hoping... I, or I, maybe I was naive. I thought that I might be able to find something that was specifically about crimes that are committed like this and looking at the parents who specifically, quote unquote, perceived their child as being LGBTQIA plus mm-hmm. or a tendency. And what I was doing was I was assuming that there would be stats on that. And there isn't like, not that I could find anything on that. Me so, either. But then again, that is a hard thing to quantify. Like, Agreed. so... Did you, I mean, maybe if it's easier, you have an example of a child that is older and is actually coming out. Right. I have an example of a child that was murdered by his parent just because they were perceived as potentially right. being gay, perhaps some mannerisms, which is absolutely ridiculous because children are very fluid in their presentation. You know, sure. it can be like kind of light or it can be very grounded. It can be a lot of things. and. What I think that says is more about what the perpetrator is is uh, perceiving. That says something that's really a mirror, more of what's going on for them. So, I mean, this is an isolation of data that I would love to see drilled down on. Don't steal my <laughs> I, term. What's that? <laughs> don't steal my term oh, that I've I used 20 times. <laughs> I would love for that to be studied. I just don't know if that can be quantified, right? Sure. You know our frustration with the unstandardized way in which law enforcement, or whomever documents the perpetration of crimes and statistics on offenders and victims. And I doubt that there's a category out there for anything regarding sexual orientation, gender variance, all of the above pertaining to either victims. And then for motive, you know, you might right. get that that comes out in court and that's where I was able to get some for my case study. But to go further with that, like you said, it could be a perception of something that it, it's just, how do you quantify that? I don't know. It's it's very, very frustrating. So for us, it was really looking at cases from the media and then being able to pull some of those out. And, and I even looked in some areas that look at killings of this community and there are, 
there were great summaries that I found. And especially, I just love that they really highlight the individual person and what they were like and what their life was like. But there wasn't information about the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. Right. So I... A highlight of this, I think I've mentioned it before here that so many people, so many listeners have asked us to cover the trials of Gabriel Fernandez, the documentary on Netflix about the torture and murder of eight-year-old Gabriel Fernandez in 2013. I can't like, it's just something I'm not interested in exposing myself to or consuming. But again, it's an example of what you were saying, this perception where I, I have a quote by the LA district attorney who was prosecuting the case, who was talking about the male perpetrator, the boyfriend of the mother that called him an evil man, said that he liked to torture and basically said that Gary, the perpetrator, systematically abused Gabriel Fernandez because Aguirre thought the young boy was gay and he's eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to cover a couple of cases. I'm going to hand this over to you to talk about Zachary Dutro. We had a, unfortunately, we had a great selection of cases to choose from. There were many that span the age of, you know, two and a half to 18, which is just frightening how many there are. And not only here in, you know, North America, but around the world. And some of them are, well, they're all violent. They're all, it's a ridiculous expression of violence, even when accounting for our framework here in the US that's relatively progressive. So when we talk about Zachary Dutro, he was a child murdered by his mother, Jessica Dutro, in 2013. She was sentenced to life in prison for that murder of him at four years old because she thought he might be gay. Zachary was brutally beaten and murdered by his mother and her boyfriend because of their belief that he was gay. He died of a combination of blunt force trauma and lack of immediate medical attention after the attack. The hospital trauma nurses noted in the court evidence and questioning that when the family finally arrived at the hospital, Zachary was already essentially dead. Oh, and gosh. they also observed that he and his three-year-old brother and seven-year-old sister were just covered in bruises. Poor babies. So, yeah, just poor, poor babies. Judge Don Latorno addressed Dutro at the sentencing saying, parents are supposed to protect their children and you were the most dangerous thing in your kids' lives. Dutro's had four children in total, so the remaining three children will remain with family members while Dutro is incarcerated. DCFS and court reports indicate that all of the children were neglected, and most tragically, that their affect was described as lacking any sense of joy. So mm -hmm. basically, these kids had been so systematically mistreated and abused and beaten that they really couldn't risk any emotional expression. That is another thing that we you find a lot in the expression of maternal or paternal violence against kids is... They get angry at the children for expressing any kind of emotion, whether it's high levels of happiness or sadness or frustration. And as we know, kids are not necessarily the best at regulating their emotions. So this is a perfect example of a poor child in this terrible situation or all these children just shutting down emotionally. So the parents essentially just want them to be like a piece of furniture and 
be neutral, not complain, not be up, not be down, just basically be out of their way. Invisible. Invisible. Yes. And then the kids, when you say lacked a sense of joy, especially with these children, meaning they've just shut that off. Not that they were terrified because of what happened, but this is probably how they are every day now because they've just been... Their behavior has been shaped that way. Right, right. And we're hoping that the three surviving children will, you know, since they're placed with family members, it'll be a healthier environment. Despite the horrific nature of the crime, uh, Dutro will be eligible for parole. And her boyfriend, Kennedy, will only have to serve 12 and a half years for his part in this terrible murder. The direction of the case indicated that Dutro had conspired with her boyfriend. Their goal was to inflict bodily harm on her four-year-old son. And there is, in the court records, uh, verbiage that says Dutro had instructed her boyfriend, Kennedy, to, quote, do some work on him, close quote. And that evidence was found in a series of Facebook messages that was pulled from their mutual computers and presented in court. Dutro was reportedly in a conversation with Kennedy where she suspected young Zachary of being gay because he walks and talks like it. Ugh. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just, I mean, I don't, I I think that that's enough. I don't want to go too much into detail. I can think what we can tell right here is some serious lack of empathy, some probably some criminogenic factors in the background, impulsivity, and just lack of connection with the children. And who Mm -hmm. knows what led to that because I don't have enough childhood background on Dutro or Kennedy to see how they got there. Or like, as in, in the case of Gabriel Fernandez, where clearly the two parents were awful for each other. Right. You know, neither one of them drawing boundaries. And it sounds like this, that was the same factor here. Neither one of them acted as a break or an impediment on the impulsivity of each other. It's a toxic couple. And to put children in that realm i think the judge nailed it when he said you're the most dangerous thing in your children's lives really heartbreaking and four years old goodness so you presented a case with such a young child my case involves a 17 year old and this is a case out of carvinhos brazil and the victim in this case is Ida Burley Lozano. And this was in 2016. His mother, Tatiana Perea, age 32, never accepted her son after he came out as gay. And he did this at age 17. This was in December of 2016. Once he revealed this to her, this happened very quickly. They had a fight. Lozano ended up leaving the home and moving in with his grandmother. Through photographs that I researched and looked at, there are, you know, selfies of Lozano and his mother together. She is a very pretty woman, looks professional, just looks like your average mother and son duo. And probably middle class in Brazil. And she had she was married, so he had a stepfather. 
But he leaves and goes to his grandmother's house. I don't know if grandmother knew what was going on or if she was more accepting. He knew he would be safe there if he just needed to get out of the home. But sometime after that argument, his mother tells him she wants to reconcile and asks him to come home. But essentially, what she was doing was luring him back with the intent to have him killed. While he was at his grandmother's, Tatiana had hired two known criminals to murder her son, utilizing a plan of sequestering them inside the home and have them hiding out, luring him back, and then directing them to kill him when he came home. So this happens. Lozano comes home expecting to reconcile with his mother, and the two hired killers beat him, but in the end, they refuse to complete the murder. So Tatiana is there. She grabs a knife from the kitchen and stabs her own son to death with that kitchen knife. She and her husband, Alex, he's 30. He's the victim's stepfather, like I said. They then take Lozano's body out to an abandoned cane field and burn the remains where they're found a week later. At trial, she tried to blame the victim. She said that her son did drugs and that he brought men home and that he threatened to kill her because essentially she put her foot down and didn't like any of that behavior. So she was trying to blame him and saying that this was a self-defense type situation when in reality, the investigators uncovered this plot to hire hitmen via social media. So your story had Facebook messages that were brought into the court. They also were able to discover that she was shopping for hitmen on Facebook or wherever. Just kidding, Facebook. I don't know what it was. But fortunately, Tatiana was convicted. She got a 30-year prison sentence for the murder of her son. The Brazilian media indicated that the hitmen were also sentenced to 21 years in prison. The charges weren't necessarily specific. I think it's a little more murky because they claim that they couldn't go through with it. But were they there when it happened? Did they beat him? Yes. So they were also held accountable with a decently stiff sentence. Some reports suggest there was a third hitman, though, again, it's murky because was this the stepfather or was there another person from outside the family there? There's a little bit of confusion. So the stepfather was charged with concealing a body, although I wasn't able to find how much time he got. But it sounds like everybody in the mix that had a part was held responsible, thankfully. Clearly. Well, hopefully. Yes. But I mean, it's it's interesting because she gets, I don't think they have a death penalty in Brazil. I'm not sure. But it is interesting to look at the ages here. She's only 32 and had a 17-year-old son. I mean, so this was like very yep. early child. Stepfather is young as well. I mean, when we think about sort of developmental periods, it's not... We don't see like a big separation of multiple decades. It's a handful no. of years, basically. Yeah. I mean, Lozano is like just a little over half the age of his stepfather. Yeah. Lozano's uncle talked about Lozano saying that he had a job. He was very polite. He never quarreled with anyone. He only had problems with his mother who did not accept that he was a homosexual. So Brazil's an interesting place. I, I was looking at the hate crime statistics there yeah. and particularly against the LGBTQIA plus community have steadily been on the rise, particularly since 2019 when they elected a wealthy 
right-wing president. So in 2017, just to give you an idea, 445 people were murdered because of their gender identity or sexual orientation. That's more than one killing every day. And according to other Brazilian activist groups, more than 160 trans people were killed in 2018. Brutal. 160. Yeah, that's... So, we, we, yeah, again, that's culturally, you know, you true, have a lot but, going on. Yes, but you know, you you pointed out something that comes up in the stats later that we find out about the U.S. as well is after a steady drop decade after decade in the last thirty years of hate crimes directed against the LGBTQIA plus community since twenty sixteen, we've seen oh, a bump. Shocker. And look what happened here in the U.S. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free. And you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So, look, I mean, we there's a lot to cover in these two very sort of disparate cases that have the same kind of motivation for the horrific murders that happened. And certainly, I want to talk about the concept of homophobia, both internalized and externalized, and also how, and please be aware also that we are recording this on Saturday, September 18th, 2021 at 4.24 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. <laughs> and our world continues to evolve in terms of what is considered to be the most appropriate framing and language usage for talking about marginalized communities and certain attitudes and personal perspectives. So when we use the term LGBTQIA+, that may very well not be the most accurate term to use five tomorrow. months from now, six <laughs> months from now, or tomorrow. And the same thing for homophobia. But we've been working on this term of homophobia for years because the idea of phobic, being afraid of something as the motivation, you think about it and it's misleading. A family law attorney, Mark Baer, says, you know, somebody suffering from arachnophobia doesn't typically harm or kill spiders because they're too frightened of them. So, mm, you know, the idea like that. that it's all motivated by fright is not really accurate. We have to tackle that term homophobia. I mean, for the last decade, we've realized how inadequate and how inaccurate it is. So we're suggesting now that the phrase sexual stigma to refer to society's negative regard for non-heterosexual things and sexual prejudice to describe an individual's negative attitudes that are based on sexual orientation, whether of themselves, which would be internalized negative sexual prejudice or externalized. But for today, we're going to just, because it'll roll off the tongue easier, we'll talk about internalized homophobia is defined as the involuntary belief by lesbians and gay men that the homophobic lies, the stereotypes, and the myths about them that are delivered to everyone in a heterosexist homophobic society are true. So that can be conscious or unconscious. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the last two decades, many of the countries in the world have made great strides in eradicating both internalized and externalized sexual stigma. And we're working to promote 
acceptance of people within the community and going so far as the legalization of equal marriage rights across the U.S. and community-wide gay pride events are certainly helping the heteronormative majority interact with, embrace, and affirm the LGBTQIA plus community who are currently in the minority. But the negative attitudes, the discrimination, the social stigma are all still existing in various levels and forms really around the world and within our own country, some so severe that the penalty is death, which is just, you know, horrifying. But then we're talking about that even in today's episode in the microcosm and the family system dynamic, how that can be perpetrated on the most helpless in our society. Yes. So even in the most progressive environments, the community are subjected to these beliefs so often and for so long, they believe it both unconsciously and consciously. So if you're a member of the community and you start to believe it about yourself, you can imagine how just unconsciously and easily, like through osmosis, it is soaked into other areas of the community unless you have role models to pull you away from that belief. Or if you have positive parenting and positive mentors that show you, no, this is just still a person with feelings and compassion and intelligence on whatever level. You know, there's plenty of dumb people in our community too. And I say our community, but (laughs) we just, we're normal. Like what's the saying? Hey, um, we're here, we're queer, we're boring. Get used to it. We're just like you. (laughs) Well, when you talk about all of these layers of issues, you know, I'm thinking obviously of these two cases that we covered and the four-year-old, gosh, it's not as if he even was able to conceptualize what his parents thought about or what their negative attitudes or discriminations right. were. Right. And then you have a 17-year-old who obviously is starting to embrace who he is and knowing that his mother probably has these negative attitudes and discriminations and still trying to move forth with that and with the support of people in his life. And it's just so tragic on both ends for different reasons. Having, you know, completely no idea what this, what what sexuality even would be all the way up until trying to be an adult in this, this world. Well, right. I mean, those are perfect examples. And externalized homophobia could be a motivator in these types of crimes, in these examples of the parents' actions. It's the perception that their child is not adhering to recognized, standardized male role norms for the culture. And even pushing down further into that, it's not just what society says, it's what they themselves believe about what is appropriate and inappropriate. And for those things, unless we get in-depth interviews with those perpetrators, we're really going to never know. What we do know is that we have a lot of data on LGBTQIA hate crimes from the FBI databases, and they show that while LGBTQIA plus people are disproportionately targeted for crimes in 2019, there were 1,656 recorded hate crimes against people for their sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, these hate crimes made up a combined 18.8% of motivation in single bias hate crime incidents. So although there's been a slight decrease, like I was telling you about over 2020 into 2021, maybe that's due to COVID. So Mm. there could be some errors in reporting. Sure. The reality is, is that hate crimes against LGBTQIA plus people have been on a slight rise 
over the past three years, which is right in line with the example of Bolsonaro, I believe. Well, yeah. we're sliding backwards in all sorts of ways in the last right. Well, let's 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 hope that there's been a turn. Let's let's be hopeful that we're moving in the right direction now. While the majority of hate crimes in the U.S. are motivated by bias towards race and religion, the number of crimes based on sexual orientation rose each year from 2014 through 2017, and that's exemplified by 1,130 incidents being reported. Of those crimes, the majority targeted gay men. So now, like I said, there's critics of the FBI data because it asserts that it likely dramatically underestimates the true number of hate crimes against the community, given the flaws in the current data collection process, massive discrepancies in the much larger number of self-reported incidents, and the idea that there's an entire subpopulation of these people who have been victimized that would be absolutely terrified to report it. Mm -hmm. So it's yep, much underreporting like, again. Exactly. It's much like rape statistics and underreporting in, in that sense. So the National Crime Victim Survey data suggests that a greater percentage of all hate crimes are motivated by a bias against sexual orientation than the FBI data does. Mm. One of the confounding factors in their data collection is that local and state law enforcement agencies are not required to report hate crimes. That blew my mind when I read it. That is so well, yeah, I, I believe it that they're not required to report it. I don't agree with it. However, if the agency believes they can get more charges against the offender, they can charge the enhancement of a hate crime. So that would be the only thing that would get interesting. Okay. At least okay. here in California. I'm not well, sure. Well, right. We're places. here in California. I think they're doing nationwide. So mm -hmm. like there's there's gotta be a version of that. Yeah, larger Everywhere. metropolitan areas are going to be doing their things probably in a more progressive and comprehensive way, I would think. No no offense to small town. Well, maybe a little bit of <laughs> small <laughs> town bit. law enforcement. But one of the things that we do know is the number of agencies participating in hate crime data collection has risen over the past two decades. From looking at 1996, when there were 11,354 agencies reporting, to now 16,149 agencies in 2017. So that is already four years old, and hopefully there's even more. Can now, I do one little soapbox edition here? Please. <laughs> kind you of. Know, I'm, I'm always pulling mine out. <laughs> I know you are. Mine, mine's tiny compared to yours, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh my <laughs> God, I can't believe you said. <laughs> so you talked about more progressive areas of the country, and... In our particular county, we have a very progressive district attorney who, on one hand, was really fighting for not incarcerating people for longer periods of time and trying to find ways to lower the jail and prison populations, which I get and I'm here for it. But a lot of ways in which that was happening is that he wasn't allowing enhancements to be filed. Yep, that's a problem. So things like being a part of a gang, you know, an enhancement like that, not filing those, but also enhancements having to do with hate crimes. And there was a last year post-summer, so maybe a little bit after summer and post-protests when... You know, there was a lot going on, especially here in Los Angeles. There was a case that came out where there was video footage of two black 
trans women being attacked and they ended up not filing the enhancements on those through the DA's office. Fortunately, I'm so happy that our DA did make a victim advocacy board. So now he has people advising him and some really great individuals that because the voices of victims always need to be heard with any of this policy stuff that's going on and all the noise. We don't hear from victims as often as we should. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, it's, you know, we have this political spectrum even between us that like you and I meet in the middle on many, uh, many opinions, the majority of them. And I work with law enforcement who are also across the board as well. But I have to say that our current DA, man, I think conceptually, I understand what he's trying to do. However, the implementation of it is very poorly done. And I'm saying that as somebody who is quite the lefty here. Sure. Like, like it isn't, I want to, I wish somebody would get across to him that what you're trying to do is not working and you're actually making it worse because you're pissing so many people off. Like nobody's really happy with this except some career criminals. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> and I'll leave okay, it people, that. People don't like it when we talk about politics. Let's move okay. on. <laughs> Clearly we have figured that out, right? <laughs> Looping back around to the idea of reporting the Gallup polls now. So we had FBI data and we had a national violence organization. Now we have something that's a little bit more public and gets a wider net of information. The Gallup poll estimate that 4.5% of the U.S. population are members of the LGBTQIA plus community. But of the 7,128 crime incidents that were reported in 2018, more than 1,300 or nearly 19% stemmed from anti-LGBTQIA plus bias. Wow. So that's going back and it is framing that 18.5% data that was in the other study. Mm-hmm. So clearly we've got two studies that are reinforcing this. Up until recently, the majority of hate crimes has been perpetrated against property, but it's noteworthy that the trend is reported. Hate crimes are now increasingly targeting people like assault instead of property like vandalism, in spite of the United States enjoying continued decreases in both violent and property crimes. Because that's very fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's like it's upending. What's going on? I think that's a reflection of how people feel just a lot of rage and anger, and they're going to take it out on who they perceive as either threatening to their sense of identity or that they just want a freaking target to wail on. Right. And like the the vandalism isn't enough. You know, it has to be something more severe or it's more impulsive. Like they're triggered right away from seeing that person and boom, the crime happens rather than oh, let me follow them home and see where they live and throw a rock through their window or whatever. Right. And then back to the idea of reporting as more agencies have started participating in that FBI program, the percentage of agencies reporting that any hate crime incidents that took place has overall declined. In 2017, only 12.6% of agencies reported any hate crimes at all, which is not great. No. All others reported zero hate crimes. But media reports and self-reported data from the NCVS database say otherwise. So research tells us that one out of five lesbian, gay, and bisexual people living in the United States will experience a hate crime in their lifetime. Those are some pretty frightening statistics Mm -hmm. right there. They sure are. 
They sure are. Once again, I think it's about marginalizing and victimizing either motivated by where you find a sense of toxic power, which is what these parents have done, or when it's adults, I really do have always believed, like we used to laugh when I was a teenager, we would, you know, it's like the old he who smelt it dealt it, a fart mm-hmm. joke, right? And we just kind of always assumed it's like, dude, if you're out there beating up the homos, there's something going on with you. Right. And now we have data all these years later that shows that, yes, this is especially for men who are really repressed or come from a repressed culture or extremely repressed religious background that cannot accept their sexuality. They want to, they're basically wanting to beat it out of themselves. So they project that outward and victimize other men or women who are part of the community. Right. They don't want to see it. They want it to just go away so they don't have to think about it. They can right. just shove it down. I'd like to mention the panic defense since we're kind of talking oh, about legalities here. That's great. Real quick. And well, it's not great, but like, thank you. Right. For <laughs> because I learned that it, by its definition, it doesn't just cover romantic situations or unwanted advances, even though that's a majority of the types of cases that it's been used in. But according to the LGBTQ bar, they state it as this. The LGBTQ panic defense strategy is a legal strategy that asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity or expression is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction, including murder. It is not a freestanding defense to criminal liability, but rather a legal tactic used to bolster other defenses. When a perpetrator uses an LGBTQ plus panic defense, they are claiming that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity not only explains, but excuses a loss of self-control and the subsequent assault by fully or partially acquitting the perpetrators of crimes against LGBTQ victims this defense implies that LGBTQ lives are worth less than others. Hmm. So in that definition or explanation, they say nothing about the type of relationship that it has to be. It essentially is just excusing the behavior. So that made me think that in some of these cases, even with filicide, the parents could be quote unquote panicking And then using the sexual orientation or gender identity issue of their child to explain and excuse what they're doing. It frightens me to think that that might work somewhere. I know. In April of 2021, the Gay and Trans Panic Defense Prohibition Act of 2021 was introduced by Senator Marquis of Massachusetts and by Congressman Pappas from New Hampshire. And hopefully we will see where that goes to make this federal because there are some states that are not on board yet. Well, it's stepping in the right direction, hopefully, although there has been a lot of action recently, which I think is politically motivated. It's interesting. I mean, as much as people maybe don't want to get into politics, I am at the age and level of experience where I don't necessarily think that any, I don't necessarily assume that any politician elected to office anywhere on the political spectrum actually believes 100% of what they present. Now, to an extent, they're supposed to represent their constituents more than they are themselves. This is what the people I represent want. I, I myself have had numerous interactions with people that represented 
their constituents, but they did not believe that. And like in the worst example would be, you know, someone that is saying that they're based on family values and then you find out they're running a underage illegal child sex images right. factory out of a hotel room, which has happened more times than you would like to think about. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or on the left, people that have had like uh, coercive control relationships with their uh, employees or even charges of rape that get hidden up. They, these are things that happen. But I'm hoping that we can continue to uphold the concept of law as it's supposed to work in our system. We're supposed to have checks and balances nationally, and we're supposed to have a fluid and ever-evolving law system that can keep up with our society. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we need that kind of movement with. But moving back to the psych discussion, I did want to ask you about your thoughts, because I look at this, these perpetrators a woman killing her child in this way. I mean, we gave an example last time of the Greek myth of Medea murdering her children. And then we Mm -hmm. got a great feedback from one of our listeners who gave us an example of this woman who was, had been stolen from her homeland, basically, you know, used as a concubine, dropped in a land, treated as like chattel. And the only way for her to get away was to act out in rage against her children. Thank you so much for the professor who, who told <laughs> yes, us that. Yes. But when we talk about filicide perpetrated among our most uh, on our most innocent, what do you think about this? Well, in these the, situations, the typologies really help me sort of shape this a little bit more because okay. clearly we have a category where we can say yes, there's some severe mental illness happening. Which is, again, rare. Again, we're talking severe, right? With some other components there, which always up the risk of violent behavior because individuals with mental health are not innately connected with violent behavior. That's just not something that happens. But when there are other components there and when it's more severe, then yes, that can happen. So... I keep taking the category of psychopathology and psychotic symptoms and kind of put that one up as, okay, there's an, there's the explanation for that category. And I can wrap my mind around what this that woman is suffering easier. from. Yes, that's easier to comprehend. So when we look at these other categories and we were talking about child abuse, child maltreatment, the altruistic, you know, they're doing it out of love because they think the child's suffering from something or they don't want a child. And that motive seems pretty clear to me. And then there's the spousal revenge. So there's a huge variety of, I guess what I'm saying is I can't see factors that fit neatly with all of those and then go, oh, okay, here's exactly what it is. So I think it's a combination of different things with some of the things that you've talked about, I mean, I feel like we've said impulsivity a lot here today. So somebody that's not able to regulate their emotions and is very impulsive, and that may include violent behavior. Now, we don't have histories on all of them of previous violent behaviors, but we know that that's a predictor, very specific predictor for future behavior. And we have young, we have old, we have different levels of maturity and education and family situations and systems. So there's such a 
just a big variety to this. I think it's really hard to nail this one down. I look at these two cases and I, I'm going to, I'm going to offer conjecture on your case. And I don't, I don't feel particularly concerned about this offering because she's doing 30 years. So it's not like anything I say is going to affect it. And I want to, how can I say this? I look at that most famous selfie that was taken during at least maybe a neutral time in their relationship. And you see Ida Barely, very attractive young man. I think he even has like a bit young, like he has braces. I mean, he really mm-hmm. looks like a teenager, very well-groomed. You know, the kids put together. Mom in those pictures does not look happy. Mm. And I'm going out at the end of the dock to throw something in the water <laughs> okay. right now. I think that she was threatened by him. I think that him coming into his own, figuring out who he was at an age where actually she would have been pregnant with him and Mm -hmm. her life would have been in a very different restricted place was incredibly threatening to her. I don't believe her testimony for a second that he was suddenly this drug-using, promiscuous young man bringing people home. As a parent, all you got to do is lock the door. I mean, like there are a lot of different things you can do before taking such violence because, and the reason I I lean towards this because the internalized belief of a personal threat can be expressed through a very personal act of rage and stabbing someone while you're facing them is Mm -hmm. a really personal and intimate, horribly, horrifically intimate act of violence. And for a mother to essentially take the stance of I brought this, I brought you into this world. You are now threatening to me and I'm going to take you out. It's terrifying. It is terrifying, but it kind of fits together. It does. I would love, you know, people after you listen to the episode, please let us know on social media what your thoughts are about this. I'm I'm very interested in mothers. I I mean, hopefully we don't necessarily have mothers that are acting violently (laughs) against their children. But, you know, I think that you know, I'm looking at it from a perspective as a, an adult male with no children. Mm-hmm. And I think someone like yourself, who's a mom, that may may have a different perspective on it. In my case, I think that the perpetrator, the mom, Ms. Dutro, was taking out some sort of rage from another part of her life onto this child. Because there's just no reason. Clearly, it wasn't just him. The other children were victimized as well. This is somebody that likely should never have been a parent. Mm-hmm. But of those four children that you've already abused, you're going to pick your worst abuse for the kid that you perceive is not conforming to male role norms. Right. And then with the murder-suicide type situations, there's a whole lot going on there that we could revisit from our familicide episode. But I think there's definitely some psychopathy present in those cases. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess kind of the ultimate question is, you know, this is so focused, such a specific type of crime with specific types of relationships that do we think these perpetrators would go on to commit other crimes? Say Tatiana serves her 30 years and comes out. What are your thoughts? Just off the top. Well, I've already done too much research. I would have thought if I had not done the research, I would have thought, well, it's a criminal. A criminal is a criminal and they're going to be more likely, blah, 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 which would be the wrong assumption to make. 
But looking at these two cases and some of the other cases that we just didn't have time to cover today, they had no other criminal background. Right. And this is so specific, like I was just outlining, that they really have to be put in this perfect set of factors to be triggered and enraged. But even if we just totally back up from that, when we look at recidivism rates for homicide offenders, even after they're released, so they serve 10, 15, 20, 25 years, there have been long-term studies that compare them to other types of violent offenders when it comes to recidivism. And they are the homicide offenders are less likely to be arrested for any type of a crime as compared to the other violent offenders. However, homicide offenders are about twice as likely as other violent offenders to be arrested for another homicide. And that's generally looking at like a nine, 10 year, a decade period following release. If they do commit another crime, it's going to be another homicide. It's another way to say that. Right. So what I would want to know more information about that particular bullet point is when we look at the severity of a crime such as homicide, I'm going to assume that the individual did more prison time which I think the more you become institutionalized in the criminal system, the more likelihood it's going to be difficult for you to have any ability to readapt, any ability to adapt to your post-incarceration world. I'm not saying that we should all go for lesser sentences. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I do think that that's an interesting factor that should be looked at is like, how long was this individual locked up and how far behind are they going to be on their integration skills for the I think community. that's a fascinating variable because I could argue that, you know, the other sample, the violent offenders, right. they might be going in and out of prison. True. Routinely, yes. you know, so do they maybe have about the same exposure and um, amount of time inside? One is just for one crime. The other one is more career criminal, violent crime opportunist. Right. So yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating variable to consider. But what we have covered today, yes, has a very specific trigger, a very specific motive. So I think we have to look at the reality of that person being in that situation again. And or if faced with something similar, would they react in the same way? Yeah, that's probably quickly without going into the full details of another case that didn't make the cut for today. The way it occurred against this toddler as well is that the child had been removed and placed into foster care for two years after being horrifically abused as an infant. So the kid is taken away for two years, blossoms, does really well comes home after the parents have now been required, court-mandated, two years of family parenting skills, and he's dead within six weeks. Oh, my God. So that's another case. I mean, we have, like, I had five of them. We had to choose uh -huh. which one to present. So that's another variable. It's like, really, if you're going to say, okay, this is what's required of the parents in order for them to be back in a position of being adequate parenting... Who's really monitoring that? And mm -hmm. it just opens up more questions, as most of our episodes do. Like, we can't wrap things up in a neat little package to give everybody sort of a, a closed-ended answer to how this is. But... Mm. Yeah, 
I, I wish there was more. I know there's wonderful researchers that will do this work one day. And I look forward to hearing more about it and having the criminal justice system really benefit from it. And catch up. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Oh, rough episode. Thanks for sticking yes. with us, folks. We really appreciate it. And we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Like Doc Shiloh said at the beginning, we will not be doing our Get Vocal for the next two weeks, but we have other content coming out. Sure. Just uh, make sure you check in with our social media and we'll put everything there for you guys. Thank you again. Thanks, Dr. Scott, for all of you. your wisdom and insight. And we'll see you guys next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.